Hello and welcome to the Travelling Sisterhood of Art Historians podcast. We are Maddie, Freya, Caroline and Serena, four art historians who each week will be chatting to an expert about visual and material culture in the 18th and 19th centuries. Join us on an art historical journey as we think about how images and objects shaped our world. Hello, this episode we're talking about something that has been right at the heart of art historical practices for hundreds of years, as a surface that art is made upon, and yet is often overlooked as a material in its own right, paper. At the end of summer, Maddie and I caught up with Professor Katrina McLeod from the Department of Art History and the Department of Germanic Studies at the University of Chicago. And Maddie and I are huge fans of Katrina's work and it was a delight to chat about her new book, Romantic Scraps, Cutout, Collages and Ink Blots, and why she's so interested in paper, as well as the tools and materials the artists she discussed used. But first, let's recap what we know about paper in our own research and what we've been reading up on this week. Well, perhaps one of the most famous artists working with paper in the 18th century is the Irish-born diarist and bluestocking Mary Delaney. And I'm sure many of our listeners would already know Delaney. Uh, and even if her name doesn't ring a bell, you would no doubt recognise her artworks. These are beautiful flowers made by cutting and collaging together pieces of hand-painted paper and pasting them to a dramatic black background. And these works, which Delaney herself called mosaics, have been copied and produced all over, most recently from the high street shop H&M, who did a collaborative range with the British Museum where the majority of Delaney's artworks are kept. And indeed, I'm sitting here with my laptop propped on a book about Delaney and leaning against a cushion that uh, features her paper flowers. So you could say I'm a big fan. But I want to talk about one specific work, and that is her depiction of a strawberry plant. So this is a work that was created sometime between 1772 and 1775 in the home of Delaney's good friend, the Duchess of Portland. I've mentioned the Duchess on the podcast before um, when I talked about the huge museum that she collected during her lifetime and that was sold at auction uh, after her death and absorbed into other collections, including what are now the British Museum and the British Library. At the height of the Duchess's collecting, Delaney would spend most of the summer months living at the house of her friend in the Buckinghamshire countryside. And together, these two widows uh, entertained all sorts of visitors, including King George III uh, and Captain Cook's colleague, Sir Joseph Banks, among many others. But perhaps one of the most surprising and I think more interesting visitors was a Chinese man called Wang Tong. Now, not much is known about his early life, but Wang Yitong did visit Britain in the 1770s, and his knowledge of Chinese plants was of particular interest to leading naturalists of the time, among them the Duchess of Portland, who invited him to her home. And during my research on the Duchess's museum, I came across several scraps of paper in the archive that show her practicing Chinese letters with a note saying that she was instructed by this visitor. And this exchange of knowledge is also um, something that extended to botany because on the bottom left corner of Delaney's strawberry plant flower mosaic is a note that includes the Chinese name for the same plant, very likely told to her by Wang Yitong. So what you see here is a combining of artistic skill and scientific knowledge, um, both of which are taking place in the shadow of an increasingly globalized world. Uh, and these sort of experiments in ways to categorize and record that knowledge in a context of colonialism. 
This is so fascinating, Maddie. I'm really loving the power of paper to combine and unite. It's really, really inspiring. I find paper fascinating because of the ways that it does this with textiles. So sorry to bring things back to textiles again. Uh, but in the 18th century, it was, you know, scraps and rags. It was textiles and fibres that were repurposed and made into paper. It is the very heart of the materiality of this material. They shared the same kind of core fibrous being. Uh, there's a fantastic print in Martin Engelbrecht's Metiers from the 1730s, which depicts a print seller with a dress made from printed images on paper. Her entire garment is these printed pieces of paper. But paper and textiles were also brought together by the hands of 18th and 19th century makers. So in my work, I've looked at these things called dressed prints. Sometimes they're known as adorned prints. There's various terms for them, but I like the term dressed. And these are these fabulous concoctions of paper and fabric that became quite a popular uh, craft activity in Europe. So what you do is you take a printed image and then you take a knife and you very carefully cut away the portions of the print that are where garments or soft furnishing should be. And then you cut out pieces of fabric behind to match the holes and paste them onto the back. So the effect is a wonderful tactile reverse collage, if you like. The work is so delicate and there are often these tiny slivers of paper left as outlines between the different garments. So I'm really struck by the skill and knowledge of materials that these works display. It's really astounding. Oh, this is really interesting, Serena, and really speaks to the ways in which different materials worked in tandem in this period. So in thinking this week about the material of paper, I have to say my sort of gut reaction is that I don't really work on paper a lot, unless I'm thinking about print culture, and its influence or interrelationship with decorative art objects like transfer printed ceramics, for example, which became really important during the kind of mid 18th century onwards. But actually, when I thought a bit more about it, I realized that paper, or more realistically, the traces of paper found on objects is a really key part of my work in relation to the history of collecting, particularly through collector labels. Now, I absolutely love picking up an object or looking under a drawer or the underside of a piece of furniture and finding a label, a paper label, written most often by the collector about the piece. So maybe it's slightly faded or slightly ripped or it's peeling off. And quite often these collector labels will kind of detail the provenance of the piece. So maybe they'll talk about where they bought the piece or how much for or what they think it is or its date. Or sometimes they might even have the dealer's label on it. Or they might even give it a catalogue number or an inventory number that they've assigned um, to their collection. And so often these paper traces can tell us so much about the ownership of an object. And of course, over time, if that object is sold or it enters into the art market or into a museum, often other labels are added. And these paper traces can tell us about all of these different types of relationships. 
So for example, thinking about this, I work a lot on a Victorian woman collector called Lady Dorothy Neville, who's this fascinating, slightly scandalous political hostess and botanist and ceramics collector. And I could kind of, you know, go on a massive tangent about her, but I won't. And she basically... Um, does a lot for women artists, but she also gathers together like-minded women collectors uh, around her. Um, people like Lady Charlotte Schriever, who gave over 2000 objects to the V&A in the 1880s. Um, and she works a lot um, speaking with these women collectors and literally thanks to a paper label found on a vase at Wadston Manor, I recently discovered, thanks to the curator there, that Lady Dorothy Neville also had this wonderful friendship with another woman collector called Alice de Rothschild, who lived at Wadston with her brother Ferdinand. And it's something, this connection, this friendship, it's something that doesn't come across through Dorothy Neville's diaries or through anything else that I've kind of found. But I've been able to trace this connection and start thinking more broadly about their friendship through this written piece of paper found on the vase, um, which actually says, and it's in Lady Dorothy's handwriting, presented by the late Miss Alice de Rothschild to Lady Dorothy Neville. Um, so it's kind of throwing up all these other connections and thoughts and ideas. And so for me, actually, it's this interaction between objects and paper that I find really, really interesting. I love this, Caroline, um, particularly the way in which ephemeral and kind of scrappy paper um, pieces can reveal so many um, more histories and so much about objects. Works on paper and works made out of paper are also super close to my heart, probably because they've traditionally occupied a slightly lower place in art historical hierarchies, which always tends to call to me. Um, but for me, paper was everywhere in the 18th and 19th centuries. It was a place where thoughts and feelings were communicated in letters, journals and diaries. And it was also a site where some of the most exciting technological developments of these periods happen, like the print revolution of the 18th century, which saw more paper, ephemera and textual materials circulated than ever before, or the invention of chromolithography in the 19th century which was an important development in paper graphic artifacts and printing. And so thanks to this explosion of paper goods of all kinds that we see at this time, what emerges is a whole culture of people loving, treasuring and processing paper in more inventive ways than ever before. And I think these kinds of interactions with paper are at the heart of our conversation with Katrina. episode we're excited to welcome our guest Professor Katrina McLeod. Katrina is the Frank Curtis Springer and Gertrude Melcher Springer Professor in the Department of Germanic Studies at the University of Chicago. She's currently finishing her book which is titled Romantic Scraps, Cutouts, Collages and Ink Blots and which explores how romantic authors and visual artists cut, glued, stained and recycled paper. So welcome Katrina. We're really excited to have you, not least because both Maddie and I look at paper cuts of various kinds in our own work. And I think it's true of both of us that we're often more comfortable with paper objects than kind of paintings and other forms of <laughs> high art. So we're really excited to be able to speak to you today, Katrina. 
extremely excited to be in your company. Uh, we, we have a lot in common. We all love paper. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So I guess we want to start by talking a little bit about the specific materials that you work on. So a lot of your earlier work is on sculpture um, and more generally, I guess, about the sort of interrelationship between text and image. So my first question is why the move into thinking about paper objects, but also given the title of your book, can you tell us, I suppose, how, how you came to use the particular term romantic scraps and what makes these artifacts distinct in the time period and the sort of theoretical frameworks that you're, you're working on and within? So thank you for the two great questions. They're quite big questions. The first one has to do with how did I get into this in the first place after a book that is about this extremely different medium and material, marble, in the case of um, my book on romantic sculpture, or actually the absence of romantic sculpture in actual material terms, but endless writing about sculpture in the German Romantic period. So I was really thinking about how sculpture becomes dematerialized by romantic and idealist thinkers and uh, poets, um, how they sort of abolished the sculpture from the hierarchy of the arts. Uh, you see this in Hegel and many other places. So while I was working on that, um, I came across a footnote. You know how it is when a footnote can trigger a whole project? <laughs> so I was thinking about um, that almost kitschy monumental sculpture of Daneker of Ariadne on the Panther. Have you, do you know that work? Um, and I was reading around quite extensively on the Daneker sculpture and I came across a reference to a heretofore unknown German paper cutter called Luise Duttenhofer. At least she was unknown to me. She may have been known to some other people. And the, the footnote referred to a paper cut that she had done of Daneker in his studio with his sculpture Ariadne on the Panther. And I was, I thought, this is very intriguing. Why would you make a paper cut? Why would you make this ephemeral small work in paper of this most monumental of Romantic era sculptures? So I went and found that image. Um, and it actually was even more intriguing than the footnote um, gave me to believe originally, uh, because the figure of, Ari of Daneker himself was just so tiny. He is sitting on a tiny chair um, off to the left of the image with the monumental Ariadne absolutely dwarfing him. Um, and he also is simultaneously sculpting the colossal bust of Schiller that he had undertaken. So he's being doubly dwarfed by his own creations. Um, and it seemed very caricatural. And I thought, why would, a, you know, why would a paper cutter take on sculpture and diminish the role of the sculptor and go to town with paper in order to represent marble? That was really the starting point of my investigation. Why would she do, why would she do that? Why would the most ephemeral medium take on the, the least ephemeral, you could say, summing up? So that was where I started. And then I got, as I started reading more about paper cutting in this period, early 19th century, I came across several clues about this relationship between sculpture and paper, uh, paper cutting one of which was that the writer Jean-Paul referred to paper cutting as scherenplastik or scissor plastic, scissor sculpture. 
um, which is I find really interesting and intriguing. The second is that um, Karl van Hagen von Enze, who's the subject of one of my chapters, um, described paper cuts as surrogates of sculpture. That I, that I also find very interesting. Mm. Um, an ephemeral and fleeting version of sculpture. And then the third was, the third thing was that several of the women artists that I focus on, Louisa Duttenhofer and Adela Schopenhauer, actually had failed careers as sculptors. They, as they aimed to be sculptors. Um, they couldn't undertake that training. And so for them, paper cutting becomes a sort of version of sculpture. Um, you know, Freya working on collage, how three-dimensional collage is. Mm -hmm. And this is why archives are so incredibly important to our work. Um, because when you look at these objects up close, you see the sculptural relief effects, the, you see the layering of paper. Uh, so I started to think about um, why they turn to paper um, in response to kind of being failed sculptors in a way. So that's the answer to part one, how I got into thinking about paper. So it was a footnote really that got me started. The second thing you asked was why I use the term romantic scraps. Um, well, that is, that is a big question for me, why I <laughs> romantic scraps, um, and I could give you a very long answer to this, but I wanted to refer to the romantic fragment without calling it a fragment, you see. Mm -hmm. um, I believe that we cannot separate a theory and uh, materiality in the romantic period which has been far, far, far too often the case in German romanticism studies. And I wanted to bring the materiality of that, as I call it, scrap back into romanticism studies. Um, and there again, I had some clues already in the Ateneum's um, journal description of fragments and practice of fragment making. So I think there were, there were three clues there. One of them was, that um, Friedrich Schlegel referred to Caroline Schlegel shelling, um, sniffing out items to put into the fragments, so text fragments, mm -hmm. um, to incorporate into this overall fragment making project. And I thought it was really interesting that this women's contribution was a sort of culinary contribution. <laughs> right? It's very material, corporeal act of sniffing out um, things that could become fragments. Then um, I noted that the, in the longest fragment of all in the Athenaeum's um, collection, Friedrich Schlegel himself appears in a fragment that we think was written by Schleiermacher as a cutter out of silhouettes. So he receives a profile, like a, an author profile of himself as a creator of paper cuts. I thought that was very interesting. And then last but not least, there's the most notorious fragment in that collection, which describes the fragment as a hedgehog. I won't give you the whole um, fragment, but the fragment is described as self-enclosed like a hedgehog. Um, and I thought, well, that actually really well describes the bristly state of the kind of paper cuts that I work on in the Romantic period. 
So scraps then also, in addition to sort of combating this immaterial tendency in romanticism studies, um, the word scrap is useful for me because a couple of reasons there, I sound like Joe Biden going number one, number two, <laughs> <laughs> he always does that. <laughs> number one, <laughs> um, to me suggests scrappiness, uh, like combative um, things that don't really jive with theories of miniature arts um, that we've inherited from wonderful theorists like Susan Stewart. Um, mm -hmm. I love her book and her work on miniatures, uh, but she describes miniature worlds as dreamy escapist places. And I really disagree with that. And I think that they are places of combat and engaging in scrappy and contentious fights really um, on the literary and artistic scene. Uh, so that was one reason, just pushing back on um, more recent theories of the miniature, but also contemporary theories that would always place artists, female artists largely, like uh, Adele Schopenhauer or Louise Duttenhofer, as small and cute. Like the, the criticism on these two authors is just full of words in German that refer to they're cute, they're dainty, they're harmless. Um, and I think really I wanted to show a very different side of these works. I think there's something just so appealing about the papercut as this sort of contested and, and like you say, scrappy side. And it's really interesting to see the relationship to your earlier work and the intermediality of that work kind of comes through when thinking about uh, the paper cut in real, as a form of sculpture, which I've never kind of thought about it as before, but actually I think it's a really productive and interesting way of thinking about the material. So I can't, I'm really excited for the book. So I'm interested in how you're situating uh, this kind of paper cutting and engagement with scraps of all kinds with um, broader practices of sort of collage making or engaging with fragments that maybe go up beyond um, simply paper. So from my own research, I found that there's kind of something for a mania for making these kinds of objects, often which are compiled from lots of objects or torn on, and taken and collected and reconstituted into a new thing. So do you see this as kind of being part of that broader practice or do you see it as being distinct in some way? I do think it's part of that broader practice. Um, for I think it's part of broader album practices. So very often these paper cuts would end in albums, particularly in the case of Adele Schopenhauer, um, with a later figure like Hans Christian Andersen, who really does work with scraps um, in very um, explicit ways. Also, we find him creating picture books that are composites with other types of materials like ribbons and, you know, um, a variety of other um, things that can be glued and cut into an album. Um, yeah, there's, that is where I see the connection. Um, another chapter of my book, um, which deals with a literary um, practice of scraps, list making and collage, um, refers to Clemens Brentano, who's a very well-known romantic author, um, who um, sees as the progenitor of his own literary method, um, his grandmother's album, which he describes as filled with glued in objects like pieces of women's clothing, um, 
holiday decorations, um, things you might pick up on the marketplace. Um, yeah, so I do think it's, it's, you can situate this within other types of gluing and pasting practices. Yeah, I really like that idea that it's both a kind of conceptual relationship that the authors and the uh, colleges themselves kind of recognize or see as an inherited practice in some ways, but also this kind of physical link between the two forms as well, that actually they end up in kind of the same places and are often um, constituted together through the same physical practices as well. That's really interesting. And also that, you know, these materials are almost uniquely pliable as well as generally more widely available, you know, than something like marble that we're, we're talking about at the beginning. Sometimes they are actually refuse items. So mm -hmm. um, there, there, was a, there was an album that was created in response to Clemens Plantano's fairy tale about the rooster, Gakalo and Hinkalaya, by two women. And they act, because, this, because the fairy tale is about chickens and roosters, they actually glued feathers into this sort of elaborate arabesque arrangement on the front of their album. So taking also sort of abject materials, the old, the dilapidated, or kind of barnyard mm. um, elements. And those kind of regimes of value are part of the contested site of the fragment and scrap, I think, as well as you've mm. sort of alluded to earlier. You're talking about the sort of the materiality of these objects and how you might engage them theoretically, but also thinking about your time in, in the archive working on these materials. How do you approach an object like that? And how do you read information about their construction? Are you able to tell, for example, if a piece of paper has been sliced with something like a scalpel or cut with scissors or, or ripped? And is it important? I mean, I, I like to think that I can anticipate the answer is yes, but is it important to, to understand those sort of modes of making? And can it tell you something about the sort of wider theoretical meaning of, of the artwork? Oh, most definitely. So there must be a difference between um, romantic women uh, in their salons using the most delicate embroidery scissors for their works mm -hmm. and an artist writer like Hans Christian Andersen, who sometimes uses his fingers, to, he rips um, paper cuts. Um, and, and when he doesn't, he's using massive tailor shears which then results in paper cuts that just are far more, I don't like using the word primitive, but they're definitely more grotesque. They have, um, they have nothing of the finite, of the, the, the minute delicacy of works by early 19th century women artists. So the choice of implement is really key. It's also really key to be able to see these works um, and sometimes even ha have them in your hands, which can be an issue of access in archives, uh, which is a problem that I've definitely come across. Um, and certainly a problem at the moment. <laughs> huh. Yes, and even at the best of times, um, there are archivists who will just hand you a microfiche while the, while the objects are in their portfolio drawers and they, for reasons of preservation or whatever, they would rather give you the microfiche. It's interesting as well, thinking specifically about the tools that are being used. And there's a kind of very obvious proximity of paper in this period then to textiles. Um, mm -hmm. You're talking about, you know, embroidery scissors and things like that, that there's a sort of fascinating object scape, particularly in like the domestic space that 
that you're able to sort of access and maybe for want of a better phrasing you sort of paint a picture of I guess you know and in self-reflexive ways um, the artists I work with often represent crafting so mm -hmm. women crafting is um, a whole a, a topic of its own I think um, that this is something that seeps into representation in, inevitably and even Philippe Otto who's probably the best known, I want to say high artist practitioner of the paper cut. I always put these things in quotation marks, but his paper cuts um, came out of embroidery designs. It's interesting to hear you call the kind of figures that um, come up in the book as artists. I know you said that that's in quotation marks, but um, because often we think about kind of artists as being fine artists and we think about women who make stuff as being crafters, but also you're talking about people who are writers as well. So it's interesting to kind of think about these figures as working across these different cultural mm -hmm. forms during this period and the kind of the flexibility and movement between them. You've mentioned quite a few names already, but is there, are there any kind of key figures who really jump out as the, you know, the key uh, figures in the book itself that you might want mm -hmm. to talk about a little more? So I think I've already mentioned almost the entire lineup. But I'll go <laughs> again. So I start with an investigation of Karl Barnhagen von Enzel, big mouthful of a name, who was a Prussian <laughs> military officer, as a matter of fact, but he was he was married to Rachel van Hagen. Um, and so he was part of the Berlin circle of romantics. And he's very fascinating for me because not only was he a practitioner of paper cuts, along with his very famous sister, Rosa Maria, but he wrote probably the only theoretical text on paper cutting that we have, which is a little essay from 1814 called On Cutting Out. So um, that I explore that in the first chapter. Chapter two is about... Um, the women I've just called artists, and I really do insist that they are artists. They see, they understand themselves certainly as aspiring artists um, and paper cuts are their surrogates in a sense for that um, artistic practice that they otherwise wish they would have had. Um, so the two main characters there are Adela Schopenhauer who moved um, in Goethe's circles in Weimar and Louise Duttenhofer who lived in Stuttgart and was part of a circle of artists and writers in Stuttgart, also um, a center for romanticism. She was married to a printmaker, which gave her um, quite a bit of access to artistic circles. The next chapter, and I, I think you can see from the move I'm describing here, that my goal is to move between objects and texts mm -hmm. but they are always also conjoined in the chapters so I'm not I don't separate them out there's a kind of interleaving of literary practice and paper practices so the next chapter is on Clemens Brentano and his collage cut and paste theories um, and it involves a reading of his 1838 fairy tale Gockel Hinkel und Gackelea funny name, all about chickens, <laughs> but it's really also all about cutting and pasting. And he sees his work as a literary variant on the album. Then I have a chapter on Justinus Kellner, um, who belonged to the Stuttgart circle I was just describing, and who's very interesting because he brings many things together, paper cutting, albums, 
Um, and now the special thing about Kerner is that he is a practitioner of the inkblot poem, which involves folding paper, seeing what happens when you unfold it. And it's a kind of pre-Rorschach test mm -hmm. um, of enterprise. And then he would inscribe poetry around these shapes. And he has a huge album that is located now at the Marbach Literary Archive in Germany, which brings together these things. So often in one page, you will have cutouts from the illustrated press with his own paper cuts with inkblot poems. So it's a, it's a very fascinating hybrid album work. And finally, um, there will be Hans Christian Andersen. Um, and here again, you have a conjoining of literature and paper cutting. And I think I'm, I will have some sort of coda. This is sort of still in the realm of to be written on Lotte Reiniger in the 1920s and how the paper cut transitions into avant-garde film animation in the yeah. 1920s. I'm interested in this especially because Paper cuts enjoy something of a, an, of a strange renaissance in the 19-teens and 20s in Germany. Um, we have a lot of illustrations for fairy tales and other works that deploy paper cuts. We have the animation film that comes out of shadow theatre and paper cuts. So it just seems to me a very interesting kind of centenary of the romantic um, artists I work with earlier in the book. Sounds so wonderful. And I'm suddenly really annoyed at myself for having really terrible German because I've never read the <laughs> theory of the paper cut that you mentioned. Unfortunately, it's not been translated. Or maybe you could have an appendices or some appendix or something. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, because I, I would love to read that. Um, and I loved your the way you insist on calling the women artists and that they saw themselves as artists is crucial as well. Because I find that a lot of the pushback you get when you're talking about this stuff and when you're deliberately including it within art history is this kind of question of authorial intention and whether the practitioners see themselves as artists or not. And so I think that is itself kind of a contested site of debate. So yeah. to kind of have that that the women did think of themselves as artists is really um, a nice way of kind of undercutting that critique of this kind of argument. And a lot of that is, you know, like the later historic, historically, right, like thinking about, um, you know, Mary Delaney's paper cuts were absolutely seen as art and, you know, Walpole includes them in, her list, in his list of, um, you know, Brit great British artists and, mm -hmm. and, and all of that stuff. So, yeah, that's interesting. I wonder as well if there's something about the demonstrative instructive nature of paper cutting that it might be copied or particular patterns might be reused for example like between mothers and daughters and things like that and there's something kind of that aligns there quite nicely with the fairy tale the idea of it being instructive mm -hmm. and sort of rhythmic and that's sort of a fascinating cross material cross-discipline dialogue going on i think which is it's no, so I think this, is, this is brilliant maddie though almost to a person the figures that I'm working with are invested in fairy tales as yeah. well. Yeah. So, you know, if you think of fairy tales as sort of not only salvage art, so they're reusing materials from mm -hmm. the past, but they're also relaying them down, down the line, right? Yeah, of and course. And often, the, especially, you know, in the 19th century, and obviously I know this is something that happens with um, Hans Christian Andersen in particular, that they're sort of gathered together in these miscellanies and these sort of, mm -hmm. you know, literary album spaces, I guess you could make an argument for. It's, it's kind of fascinating that they are kind of admittedly more fully formed, but they're still kind of scraps that are being brought together in new ways.
Yeah, and paper cutting very often accompanies fairy tale telling. So for Hans Christian Andersen, for example, um, it's a sort of theatrical performance. He tells a story, he cuts out paper alongside the storytelling. It really is like a, um, a performance he puts on. So we've talked a lot about how paper cutting might speak specifically to the emotional and the intimate, but also more broadly sort of theoretical or uh, political ideas mm-hmm. in the Romantic period. So can you say maybe a little bit more about how the, the paper cuts that you're working on specifically might speak to, for example, emerging ideas around, we've talked about women, so maybe you know, more broadly about gender or, or race at the time. Do they, do they engage and maybe subvert, you know, or, or potentially uphold, I suppose, uh, ideas around sort of the colonial world and, and those sort of agendas? Are they working in, in, against those or, or with them? I think both, to be honest with you. Mm. Um, It's not completely clear cut one way or the other. One of the reasons is that they, well, first of all, the time that these are created, right? We can't ignore. But they also are inheriting the legacy of Lavater and his physiognomies. Mm-hmm. And so, which have, which then become very racist, right? This ability mm-hmm. to recognize a person's ethnicity or race based on um, features of their face, um, you know, physiognomy, phrenology, all kinds of pseudosciences like this are coursing around in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. So the paper cut can be deployed in both ways sometimes at the same time. This is what is what I find really curious and I still am struggling in a way with why it is so complicated. Karl van Hagen von Enze's little essay that I mentioned, for one thing, on the one hand, um, talks about distinctively Jewish profiles. So there's a strand of anti-Semitism, sort of being able to cut out a Jewish profile. And it gets even worse than that because there is a description of a person he calls an extremely talented paper cutter who cuts a Jewish profile from a living leaf of a tree, which I, which I describe in my book as a kind of um, physiognomic vivisection, where the word for leaf is also the word for paper, right? So there's a kind of naturalizing of the physiognomy through cutting out a leaf and creating a so-called Jewish profile. Um, so I find I found that very shocking, especially because Varnhagen von Enze was married to one of the most prominent Jewish figures in Berlin, Rachel von Hagen. Um, so how, why was that? And yet elsewhere in the essay that he writes, we have him praising Jewish paper cutting folkloric traditions. So kind of look at these wonderful traditions from um, from Jewish folklore, cutting out Sukkot banners, right? And he he even describes elsewhere quite approvingly a Jewish court of law, a Sanhedrin. So it's it's very ambiguous in that text, but it's definitely a problem, this sort of racial physiognomy. Um, Largely the the legacy of Lavater and also the proximity potentially of paper cuts to caricature, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's what I would say about that. And, you know, not to forget the grotesque stereotypes of little black boys in Heinrich Hoffmann's Strubelpeter text, word image text from the 1840s, where a group of black boys is punished for bullying a white boy 
by them being dipped in ink to make them even blacker. And then they are represented in the form of silhouettes or paper cuts. Mm -hmm. So this is, you know, I say that paper cuts are scrappy, but they're also embedded in deeply racist notions mm -hmm. of physical appearance. Um, and that comes up repeatedly in the 19th century. That's so interesting because the, it's a difficult ground. And I think Maddie has dealt with this a little bit in her work as well. But when you're trying to kind of do sort of feminist work by maybe re kind of reintegrating narratives of women who've been kind of lost from history back into the, the sort of the canon, but then also kind of dealing with the fact that they are engaging in practices that are often racist or at least kind of colonial. So and in my work, I've come across lots of, when I've been looking at scrapbooks, lots of very racist scraps mm -hmm. featuring kind of black men and women. So it's a, a, a strange kind of act to try and recover the work being done by these figures without kind of shying away from their complicitness in yeah. holding up these um, supremacist ideologies and balancing yeah. that is difficult work. I agree. And there's, um, there, for example, there's a Hans Christian Andersen paper, uh, picture book rather um, housed at the Library of Congress that I, again, find very intriguing, difficult to understand because um, there are so many scraps representing or taken from the American press about the Civil War, um, representing slaves, and then you will have cut out silhouettes. So it's, it's, you know, very tricky ground to maneuver, but I think we have to um, try and explore what is going on with these um, sometimes uh, to our minds, perplexing juxtapositions. I wonder if a lot of that as well is dealing with sort of intermedial objects and that there's, there's so much to think about, not only in terms of what those objects are representing, but also the modes of production um, mm. through which they've they've come to be in an album and how they might you know their meanings might shift as they're sort of gathered together and there's there's all these sort of different complex layers and complex different angles that do you know invite these very difficult questions potentially more so than you know working necessarily on a painting where it might be more explicit in terms of what the the sort of authorial intent is yeah and even just thinking about where the paper is coming from, where the ink is coming from, and how it fits in those kind of broader yes. trade networks and avenues of colonialism in a very physical and material sense. And this sort of, for some reason, Brazil crops up twice in my research. In Carl van Hagen von Ense's essay, he more or less concludes the essay with a vignette about a Brazilian paper cutter with almost occult powers who has to be exercised because of the sorcery of the paper cutting. And then, so there's a kind of magical, demonic and non-Christian element to mm. paper cutting. And then with Hans Christian Andersen, he does a remarkable paper cut of a news story in newsprint in, in Portuguese from a Brazilian newspaper. No, sorry, it's a Danish newspaper on a Brazilian story. And it represents a Brazilian man with a gaucho hat so colonial questions are also coming into play here, so patterns of exchange and where do products come from in the 19th century mm. and how they circulate is a very good question to ask. Mm. That's a 
one of the key questions. Okay, well, we have reached the point of the podcast where we ask our guests to bring along an object or artwork of particular interest. So Katrina, can you yes. describe uh, for us what object you've brought along and maybe say something about why it's so special to you? I Just so our listeners know, as usual, we'll be putting up a couple of images of Katrina's choice over on our Instagram and Twitter accounts. I think I had to bring this in. It was a, This was a very difficult task. Um, you know, it was the proverbial, which of my children do I love the most <laughs> except that instead of two there were probably many more <laughs> than two <laughs> so I decided in the end to bring in this work by Adela Schopenhauer from 1820 the reason I brought it in is it's just the most complicated and I just find the most refined paper cut um, it's almost overwhelming in its minute detail. So it's also very large. So mostly the paper cuts I work with are small. This one is has many small elements, as you can see. When I picked this image up, when I picked this work up, rather, it wasn't just an image. In Weimar, I counted over 70 individual figures. I should say what it is so that people listening can get an acrostic account of what it actually is. So what we have, what we see here is you'll see to your left, this man lying on a bed, a very elaborate four, kind of looks like a four poster bed, sleeping or just having woken up. And all around him, we have a horde of elves essentially or fairies who are partying i mean that's just to sum it up um, they're even um, cavorting through the space with horse and carriages um, as you can see at the bottom there are several horses and carriages at least three there are donkeys wandering through the space there are fairies um, doing sort of tightrope dances on the chandelier as you can see on the top they're even dancing on the top of the bed um, well, there are many kind of outrageous and um, out of kilter activities going on in this scene. Um, and what it is, is Adela Schopenhauer's take on a ballad that Goethe wrote in 1804, uh, which is called, she calls it the dwarf wedding. Uh, he called it the wedding song, a little bit less <laughs> obvious. And the ballad is all about um, a certain aristocrat who returns home to his ancestral castle after years at war. Um, and he comes back and he finds that hordes of fairies or dwarves have actually, dwarves is probably the better word, have occupied his palace, his castle, um, and they've totally trashed the place. So this is Adela Schopenhauer's anarchic, um, I think, reading of Goethe's already quite anarchic poem, uh, The Hochzeitlied. I mean, it's just, there's so much detail, it's so much to take in. These tiny little figures are, are just amazing. The, the ones riding horseback at the bottom are beautiful. And even the, the whip of the, some of the carriage drivers, you know, it's just yeah. the most incredible detail. Yes, and when you when you pick this thing up, it's actually framed, as you can see um, in the image I shared. It has a rather nice silver frame. You will, if you had it in person, you would see that there are very delicate fringing um, details in the bed canopy, for example. So these are very 3D elements in the paper cut, where she has scissored fringes in around here. So it's a, it's a, it's a work of just stupendous 
dexterity and ta- and and skill. Do you know much about who made it and and where exactly it would be displayed or encountered? Um, this is a question I really wonder about myself and haven't fully uncovered the answer to. She made it in Goethe's orbit in her mother's salon in Weimar. And there were some efforts to actually have it printed. So one of her friends sent it to one of the most famous arabesque artists of the day, a guy called Schröder, for publication. But he rejected it, saying that her arabesques were too clumsy or some such, which I thoroughly disagree with. Among other things, I love the way that her figures sort of impinge upon the arabesque framing that she's given the the image. Like here, there's a figure kind of standing on the arabesque. I think this is all very purposeful, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so it ended up not being reproduced, not going into print, um, which I think had been her aim. And it actually became part of her estate and went into the hands of her devoted friends. So she, it was not sold. It was kept in their possession until they, that estate was eventually acquired by the Weimar archives in the 19th century. So as far as I know, the frame is contemporary. I I figure it must have been displayed in a domestic interior space. Mm. I don't know for 100% for sure. It's such a fascinating object. What strikes me is just, as you said earlier, the manual dexterity. I'm just trying to imagine myself trying to make it. And it's just so... I just would, I, I mean, how, where do you start? And I can't even cut a sort of straight line when I try and cut a piece of card. So like, yeah. I just cannot understand how this was made. Um, so yeah. it's, it's truly really remarkable. You know, it's just staggeringly virtuosic. But I also would like to emphasize my reading of it, which is that it is also a criticism or, or a send up more of the Salon in Weimar, because I think the guy who's in his bed, besieged by the, these lower class dwarves, could be good to himself. <laughs> uh, he was the sort of the star of the circle, but Johanna Schopenhauer's Salon was famously a much more open place class-wise than aristocratic circles would have been. And that's where my work, I think, is a little bit different in orientation from Maddie's, because you're working on very elite circles. So Johanna Schopenhauer's salon, I'm not going to say it was open to the common man, but it was open to a wider um, array of bourgeois actors than um, aristocratic salons would have been. That's so interesting because a lot of the the material culture that I deal with um, in my work, as you say, is is all, you know, made by and circulated within these very, very elite um, networks around the the blue stocking salons. And uh, for them that kind of work is always very central to their identity and it's interesting to see that happening here but in a very different way really. So that's my take on it that it is also a take on the salon in which Adela was a sort of she was a participant but paper cutting happened on the side so to speak when something there was a space in the in in the activities like somebody had done a musical recital and then there might be some paper cutting Um, so it was a a rather side activity to the main events of the salon and I just my I would I stand by this interpretation that she's being quite subversive 
And in that sense, it's not only a very skillful object in terms of its physicality and its making, but actually it's a really kind of smart commentary on on uh, society as well. And I, I guess that would be the kind of one of the points that I'm, I mean, I guess I'm putting words in your mouth here slightly, but that <laughs> looking at this stuff is really so wonderful because it is both um, kind of physically and materially so rich, but also this it deeply engages with kind of modes of thought from the time and um, other forms of cultural production. And so it has this dualistic kind of impressiveness. It works on both of those levels mm -hmm. so, so mm -hmm. well. And also just the potency of paper in particular, actually, that it is, it does carry this, this weight, this sort of cultural um, weight in terms of like the commentary that it's able to, to perform. Even if it's physically very scrappy. Uh, I agree. And I, I, one of the other little details that I love about this, work is that here we have at the center this massive chair which almost looks like a neoclassical design and it has at its center a paper cut which looks mm. like a like a neoclassical almost like a flaxman type mm. or wedgwood motif mm. it's all controlled see all those lines gathering in around that oval mm. and yet everything else around it is utterly disruptive mm. so I view the paper cut as just exploding out of that space of control, which mm. is at the, the visual center of the image. Thinking about Flaxman and Wedgwood and mm -hmm. the, the sort of dialogue of paper cutting there, that I, some work that was in my thesis that I cut out and have ignored ever since, but was on the, um, the paper cutting done by Queen Charlotte's daughters and, and their use of and possibly con contribution to some of Wedgwood's designs through paper cutting. And that's kind of fascinating that that tradition there that maybe this is speaking to as well, that the, the centrality of paper cutting in, in those other sort of decorative arts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And was recognised by other kinds of artists and yeah creative people at the time, but that has since been kind of unrecognized, I think is really interesting within the historiography and yeah, those hierarchies that have been put in place. Whereas actually for people like Wedgwood or Flaxman, those dialogues have been really important and kind of self-evident at the time, but we've just been uninterested in them since. sisterhood of art historians podcast please do follow us on twitter and instagram and don't forget to subscribe